Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hey everybody, welcome to Permission to Be. Uh, it's Tommy here with uh, our co-host Becca. What's up, Becca? Hey, hey. <laughs> so today I am super excited. Like, y'all just don't understand. I-, I wish I had words for the feeling within my soul to interview Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. Um, mm. I was first introduced to Dr. Shaniqua. Uh, Dr. Barnes at Evolving Faith last year, and I I just found her so compelling and her story uh, magical. And then did a little bit of stalking, and to realize you meet a lot, y'all y'all are in for a treat. Y'all are in for a treat. This woman is a scholar, a public theologian, a minister rooted in womanist theology, a clinical psychologist, a professor. We are not worthy. <laughs> we are not. We are not. Dr. Bars, how are you? I'm good. It's so good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so what do you what do you go by? Dr. Shaniqua, Dr. Bars? What do you like I wanna I wanna make sure I honor that, Dr. That. Shaniqua is actually what most people and my students call me. Okay, Dr. Yeah. Shaniqua, that's what it is, because <laughs> you worked hard for that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> So not only a clinical psychologist, but then you went to seminary. Like, I'm going to ask a biopic question in a second, but I'm just curious about your what? Let's do that together. I'm curious about your education journey, and also as you're thinking about that, also think about who would you want to play you in the biopic of your life? Wow. Yeah. So education journey. Okay, I can I can kind of start with there because um, it's very much tied up in my call story. Mm-hmm. Um, I experienced my call, um, probably the summer before my freshman year of college. Um, but I didn't know that's what it was. I came from a church, um, that did not believe in women in ministry. I had never seen a woman in ministry. Um, and so it just wasn't even a possibility for my life. And so I really saw um, racism and helping particularly my people heal from the wounds of racism. That was going to be my call. So Mm -hmm. I channeled that into um, a majors in psychology and African-American and African studies and um, and very, very intentionally chose a major that I thought would help me fit my call. Um, What was ironic is I had a roommate who was a a religion major. Her mom was an Episcopal priest. She has since become an Episcopal priest. But when she first told me she was doing that, I was like, why? You know, I just couldn't imagine (laughs) like that. as a woman. And so I went into psychology and did well, loved my career, was a faculty member in psychology at a really good mm. school, thought I had made it kind of hit the holy grail, um, yeah. but continued to get struck by stuff and particularly around black women um, and the pain that black women were mm. experiencing and went through some of my own stuff, ended up kind of getting involved in ministry. Um, 
but as, as kind of a way of telling God, I'm going to do this little thing with the church and leave me alone um, because I have my thing. <laughs> you know how that goes. <laughs> and, yeah. And then, um, and then a few months later, I'm walking into my department chair's office saying, Hey, I'm leaving. I'm going mm. back to school. I'm going to seminary. Um, mm. And so that's how my career has sort of um, unfolded um, in this way. That was, it was always a call, but mm. I just didn't know how to hear it. Um, mm. I even called it a call. I knew that's what it was, but hmm. I didn't understand it as a, a, a call to ministry. I couldn't use mm. that word ministry with it. Mm. And I couldn't begin to think about how to form um, and prepare myself for, for that vocation in that way. So yeah, that's how I, I I went that roundabout way to do what I do. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh so yeah. many questions already. But go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead and answer the bi- biopic one too. <laughs> <laughs> we can just yeah. <laughs> yeah, that biopic question, man, that's a hard one. I'm sitting here thinking, and I don't, I don't even know that I would know who could who could do that? Who could play me in, in a movie that I'd be okay with? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that. Yeah. (laughs) When when we invite you back to the podcast, we'll, we'll, we'll see if that changes. I know. Now I'm going to be like watching movies and stuff that being like, could that be the person? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be casting people all the time. Like, Are, are they are they telling my life story right now? <laughs> Can they play that part? Yes. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> All right. So this is Becca's first like sort of time getting to talk to you, getting to so so like Becca, like go to town on some questions. Yeah. Like I I I like, I saw you light up when she started talking about all of that. <laughs> well, just right off the bat when you were talking um about having the call and going in that direction. I was curious what I sensed and maybe I'm totally wrong, but it felt like that that couldn't be for you. And was that rooted in fear? Was there any fear in that? Probably, probably. And, and still is. Uh, Initially, I think it, it really, When I say it wasn't even in the realm of possibility, it was not in the realm of possibility. Mm. And that could have to do with a lot of things. Part of that could be fear. A lot of that was probably rooted in being from, um, I was the second person on my mom's side of the family to go to college. Um, On my dad's side, the the first in a few generations, Um, there's some extended family. But so I went to college like many working class um, kids do first gen college is thinking about what job you're going to get. And um, especially coming out of the historically black context I was in, the only job for in in the church was really uh, um, the pastor. Right. That was that was it. Um, You know, and so, again, I just didn't see it within the realm of possibility of even Mm -hmm. things that I considered doing for many reasons. I do think, though, that fear was undergirding that um, the 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 fear of um, even the fear of seeing my potential was mm. undergirding that for a very long time. Even when I did actually accept the call and go to seminary and I struggled for so long and often still do. 
about, you know, wh- what can I do? And so um, part of my vision for this year has actually been learning to dream big, mm-hmm. remove the limits that I tend to place on myself about what I can and can't do. I tend to um, limit my dreaming because of these ideas I have about, you know, who I am, what my role is and what I ought to do. And so I'm constantly learning to unlearn that because part of my story, particularly a black woman from the South, only one generation removed from sharecropping, is that knowing how to be safe is one of the like the biggest things in how um, my family negotiates decisions, right? It is what places are we allowed to go to? What things are we allowed to do? What what do we see as a pathway? Let's find the path of least least resistance. Um, And and ironically, that's paired with this very strong stubbornness and work ethic. But there's always this sort of paradox in between trying to figure out what I think I can do. And and now really being in the space of saying, stand back, let me not think of what I think I can do. Let's start with what's in my heart, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What's in my heart and what might it look like to dream that? So um, I feel like fear and and undoing fear is Mm -hmm. a big part of of the story of of my life. Mm -hmm. I... I resonate with that so much as, as a queer black man. Um, but at the same time, when you say, when you tell your story there, for me, it goes a little deeper because I was just thinking about it the other day. My mom always said, raising, she had two boys and she always said, Oh, I'm so glad I didn't have girls. And I hear so many black women say that. And I didn't understand it until I started my journey a few years ago on anti-racism work on feminism, on discovering womanism and recognizing the struggles and the limitations that society places on women and then combining that with intersectionality as that compounds into blackness or queerness, the limits that we place. And, And so can you talk more about negotiating safety? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I I would say it's interesting because I've also heard people talk about um, more of a fear about having black boys. Right. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, this is one of those cases where we don't have to play the oppression Olympics. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the way in which racism is gendered that black men, black women experience it in different ways. I don't know that there's more of a feeling of safety for any one of us, um, as the mother of a, uh, of a son, um, who's 11. So he's, 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 he's kind of at the age, um, where he will soon stop being seen as a boy, mm-hmm. um, and, and becomes a threat. And so there's that fear around that. So I think negotiating safety, I, I know for me again, lifelong Southerner, I think I make a lot of decisions about safety. It's it's embodied in how I move in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, as a black woman, it's not only am I not, not safe from the white power structures, but I'm not always safe from the black men in my life mm-hmm. um, as well, right? And that's yeah. whether it is it is on the job, it is, you know, where can I expect someone to have my back? Um, that that comes up at, as well. Um, and so... 
So I think this issue of where can I find safety? Where can I find solidarity? I feel like I almost always enter a room trying to figure out if these are my people, Mm. right? Like it's always Mm. that. And there's that guardedness and, you know, looking out for those catch words and somebody says something and you're like, okay, yeah, you're not my people, right? Is there (laughs) always always that, right? And there's sometimes Mm -hmm. is lulled into a sense of security and safety and thinking, Oh, these are these are good people, and then something happens, and and there's that sense of betrayal, and so I think that feeling of never being safe mm. um, comes up almost always, unless unless I'm in a context of African American women. I mean, that's that's mm. the only only space where I feel like I get to fully relax. I've been in some spaces that are women of color, and even then things come up where it seems that, oh, it feels like the non-black women of color are expecting the black women to, to, to mother them, to care for them, to comfort mm. them. Right. Um, and so a lot of times, yeah, that feeling of it, it's so hard to explain it when it's the only way you've ever known life. Amen. Right. When you don't even know that other people don't go through the world like this until you start talking to people and then you realize, wait, that happens for you. You get to not think about when police pull you over, they don't have their hands on their guns. That happens. I thought it was procedure for them to have their hands on their guns. Right. Um, and so, and, and at the same time to be told you're not a threat, right. Um, often by black men, um, who want to diminish the, the, the way in which, um, black women are oppressed. Um, yeah, it's 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 a very interesting space to be in, even to raise a son in and try to figure out to what extent do I try to prepare him to protect himself um, mm. and to navigate a dangerous world. Yeah. And to what extent do I try to try to shape someone who is liberated and feels like he can live in the fullness of who he is and be whoever he is without that constant fear. Mm, yeah, it, it's that tension of the world as it is versus the world as it could be. Exactly. Um, oh. mm. Wow, yeah. so good. Yeah. Mm. And as a white mama, yeah. I've never had to think about that. Wow. I mean, I have the weight of it, but I don't feel the weight of teaching my son not to walk down the street without a hood on his head or making sure when he gets of the age that he'll call me every time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 And I I don't know what it's like not to look at my son through the white gaze. Mm. Right. I started when he was a baby. Right. I remember. Can you define the white gaze for? Yeah. The white gaze, you know, is part of what, um, and gaze as in G A Z E. Um, but it's this, this is, it's what, um, Du Bois talked about when he talked about double consciousness, that as Mm. African Americans, we are always aware of our blackness and also aware of being black in an anti-black world. Right. Mm. I think that's the language he might use today. And so we're always seeing ourselves, not just for who we see ourselves, but we see ourselves as if we are white people looking at us. And so as I'm walking down the street, as I'm going to the mall, how am I going to dress today in a way that the white sales girl will see me as a 
a valid customer and not a potential thief, right? That I am waking up with those decisions. How am I going to dress today in a way that people will see me and respect me as someone who has a whole lot of education and, and knowledge, right? So that when I go to the doctor's office, they take me seriously, right? How do I present myself today? And so for my son, um, I remember very going to this church, taking him to this church when he was less than six months old, These this predominantly white church, not predominantly, all white, lily white church. <laughs> well, it was a church that had been formative to me when I was in seminary. And so I took him and, and they just loved on him. They had loved on me and my husband and they were passing him around. And I remember the moment when I thought, at what point does he stop being cute to you? Like at what, what age is this little fat cheek boy going to stop being cute to you? Um, and, and, and as he gets older, I have, I become more and more aware, like we're getting closer to the year, we're getting closer to the year. And so there is never any, any point in my life in which I am not keenly aware of race, um, Mm. because being keenly aware of race is how my family has survived. It is how my Mississippi and, and, and North Florida, um, born parents, learned how to survive. It, it mm-hmm. is knowing the danger signs. It's figuring out what role people expect you to play. And if you're going to break that role and, and, and shatter um, um, expectations, you do that knowing what the consequences of that are. Um, but sometimes you, you weigh those decisions, right? It is the way you learn to carry yourself when you're outside. It is always having to negotiate, not just who I am, but how and not just how people see me, but specifically how do white people see me? Um, and how do I need them to see me in this moment to get what I need taken care of, to get um, my needs met, to, to do my job, any of those things? Wow. That probably a few months ago, my response to that would be, wow, you're so strong. <laughs> however (laughs) i have been educated (laughs) um and i'm waking up to how that that classification of black women um i forgot to mention this in the introduction, but Dr. Shaniqua has authored two books, the first being Too Heavy a Yoke, Black Women and the Burden of Strength, which was published in June 2014. And then I Bring the Voices of My People, A Womanist Vision for Racial Reconciliation Mm -hmm. in October 2019. And this notion of Black women being the pillar or, or, or this, I don't know, how would you say it? This, this notion of the strong black woman, yeah. why is that so harmful? Because I think that most people would look at that benignly and innocently and go, well, look at what they have, have they've overcome and look at how they have to walk through life. 
But yeah, I will. Like, yeah. I'm gonna shut up now. <laughs> oh, wow. yeah, no, no, so so I critique this um, notion of the strong black woman, and when I write it, I write it without spaces, like the three words smushed together, right? Um, and that's to differentiate between being a woman who is strong and black, right? That the strong black woman is this very particular way of being in the world, and it's a, it. And and when we use that term, strong. We're using it in a specific way, and usually when it's re- when it's done with respect to Black women, um, it is strong means is is this code word for able to withstand suffering without a complaint, right? Mm-hmm. And without and without relief, right? Mm-hmm. That you can just keep suffering, and you're just going to do what you have to do, and you're going to suffer. You're going to take care of everyone else. And you're not going to need help from anyone else, right? So I talk about the three um, characteristics. Um, the hallmarks of the strong black woman are um, emotional strength, caregiving, and independence. And that this has become the predominant stereotype of black women. Um, it is women who can just we can do it all. Um, and and because of that, people will pile more on black women. We will pile more and take more on ourselves. We won't take care of ourselves. And in some respects, what we're seeing with this um, coronavirus, this COVID-19 pandemic um, for many black women is the impact of, of, of neglect of our health because mm-hmm. we've been so busy um, speaking biblically. We've been so, so busy taking care of other people's vineyards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from the Song of Solomon, that that is what we do. Uh, but our own vineyards we have not kept. Um, and so we go after and take care of the needs of everybody else. And so we often then will say that is, well, we can just, we can handle more. We can just pile it on. And meanwhile, our bodies are breaking down. Our, our, our mental health, our physical health, our emotional health, our relationships, our spirituality are all breaking down. But from the outside, we look like we have it all together, right? Mm. So it becomes this mask that we lay on over who we are. Um, so part of my own journey has, begin, has been um, learning to figure out who I am and mm. not who society told me I had to be as a Black mm-hmm. woman. So um, I say many Black women don't know who they authentically are that we just, we see this model and we try to fit ourselves into it. And we think if we don't fit ourselves into it, we're not a good person. Um, and we're certainly not a good Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think because of white culture and uh, colonialism that there's a false sense that that model is more secure? Absolutely. Um, so the, the strong black woman is, was developed. It, it, it's not an accident. It was um, developed, um, a persona developed, not with that name, but with those attributes um, mm-hmm. very conscientiously by black club women, um, women who were in these um, women's groups um, in the late 19th century. And they did it in response to an article that a white um, Missouri newspaper man had written in which he said he was trying to discredit Ida B. Wells' um, anti-lynching campaign. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, all black women are liars, thieves, and prostitutes. 
Mm. And so these black club women got together and said, we need to prove that we are not what he said we are, right? Mm. And so what we are going to do is we are going to cultivate this different persona and we're going to very um, intentionally and systematically go out into churches, communities and homes and teach women to fit this model. Right, and it was all this effort to disprove the negative stereotypes that um, white racism had about black women's identities, black women's sexuality, black women's integrity, black women's morality. Um, that's what the strong black woman is. And so it's never something that black women just did to ourselves, right? Yeah. It's always yeah. an attempt to repeat racism and especially the gendered racism that, that black women are, are, are subject to. Mm. I often have to remember these things when I work as a nurse uh, for my day job. And I often have to remember these things when I'm providing care, um, especially to my people. And there's one of the conversations that I love getting to have at work is, is that about cultural competency, because I think there's so much trauma, you know, that gets passed down from us. And so it's really easy to see mm -hmm. the expectation of whiteness in the healthcare setting when there's a lot of emotion and it, we don't necessarily know how to deal with it. And it, it, it breaks my heart. And it's also challenging for me because I have to check in with myself a lot of times um, because it's like, it's a trigger. Like, oh, mama's yelling at me or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> I go back into like that childhood mode. Yeah. And I I remember one time just sitting there sort of like getting, uh, I don't want to say berated, but I, I, I could tell that this, this black woman was advocating for, for her family member. And it was just so intense and powerful because of, of this, that you could tell like this woman was, you know, really well accomplished she was mm -hmm. really well read um like had her phone out was like i will call my lawyer if i need to and it's one of those things that, that i sit there and i ache so much because i want to go i'm fighting with you i want you know and i want to and so it, it it just breaks my heart that that burden is something that black women have to carry in every area of their life in, in which we wouldn't even think about or see or even put the pieces together to, to know how to engage their humanity and their dignity in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, um, the, the, the issue of healthcare is really where, you know, it really hits the fan, right? I mean, it, it from, from not having, um, I mean, it, it starts with black women, not even knowing how to narrate our own symptoms. Right. Not because um, I say in the book that we've developed a skill for developing with walking feet, with broken walking with broken feet. Mm -hmm. Right. We'll 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 be hurting. Right. We'll be we'll be in pain. But we assume everybody's in pain. Every, every black woman we know is in pain. So we think pain is normal. Mm -hmm. So even recognizing something is wrong, I can tell a medical provider about this and they should respond. Those thoughts don't necessarily happen. 
to mm-hmm. us, right? Yeah. Um, even though I, I see it, I, I have right. to advocate for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so even I mean, even like from the healthcare, it's like no, you have to actually break it down for women, and you have to you can't say tell me your symptoms. You almost have to go body part by body part and be like like how your how you, how's your big toe feeling right now like you know <laughs> like you really do because we don't know how to pay attention to that right we don't know how to evaluate because we're always again evaluating ourselves compared to other people including our enslaved ancestors so we figure that pain i have not a big deal that feeling I have, not a big deal. My ancestors dealt with more than that. And so we don't even know how to deal with that. By the time we come to the attention of medicine, we're suffering. Um, We've been suffering for a long time and we finally Mm. said something about it. We're bearing the emotional aborting of that suffering. And the physicians, the nurses, are still not listening. They're not hearing us, right? Because there's, there's still the bias in the healthcare industry. There's the way in which we will look even in the midst of a health crisis, right? I'm still gonna get up, I'm gonna do my face, I'm gonna have my hair, I'm gonna show up to my appointment. The doctor's looking at me thinking you couldn't possibly be suffering. We think you're doing okay because I went through all this, um, all of this effort to still wear the mask, right? Um, and so it becomes hard for them. And then there's also the bias in thinking that um, black people in general are seeking um, drugs, that we experience less pain than other people, right? There's so much. And so we can't narrate our symptoms well. The medical establishment isn't prepared to hear our symptoms well. It's uh, it's it's just right for, you know, the, the way we get attention then is how do you get it is you explode, right? It's the mm-hmm. way that we have been socialized to finally get the attention of people is you have to explode, um, which also doesn't make us feel good. Right. It feeds yeah. into the whole cycle of stress. And, and so, yeah, and it's all because everybody expects us to be strong. We expect ourselves to be strong. Um, and it really just does a number on on our health and well-being. Mm. I remember very vividly my mom saying, I might not feel good, but I'm damn sure going to look good. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And people will make judgments on how we look. Right. And so people, because that's, I mean, that's part of, I mean, in, in, in healthcare, your patient note. It talks about how people look, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really, you're taught. It's an I mean, assessment as a, piece. Yes, yeah. right. As a psychologist, I was taught pay attention to how they how they look, mm. right? How, are they well groomed, right? Mm. <laughs> and you know are those things in there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of that language you were supposed to be using it, and so then when we come in and we're absolutely polished, right? Um, and, and I will not lie. I, I probably wore some foundation to my chemo sessions when I was going through breast cancer, right? Like, yeah, again, I don't have to look bad. And part of that is a way of shoring our own spirits up, but then people take it as an indication of our health. Right. Mm. And they're completely separate things. Right. One of them is there's a hopefulness in it. Right. And there's this sense of I'm still going to have pride. Right. I'm not going Mm. to let um, my symptoms, my suffering take all of who I am. But it is often misinterpreted as then um, 
you know, it is, we don't, we don't, we don't, we won't cry to the same extent, right? Mm-hmm. We won't, we won't um, talk about our pain to the same extent. And part of that is because we think we got to be strong, right? You know, well, I mean, we'll say in a heartbeat, you know, like, what do you, what do you expect me to do? I'm not a white girl, right? <laughs> like, I'm not going to be crying like these white, but like that is part of how we are socialized to think is that pain, fear, hurt. Those are things white women express. Black women, we get mad. because we're not Mm -hmm. strength doesn't let you show vulnerability and so what we do instead is we get mad but really behind that anger is hurt it's fear um it's anxiety there's so many other things that are really being masked by by anger i do i'm uh studying the enneagram and i use it and as i do coaching as well one of the common things that in the research and in conversations that we're seeing with the Enneagram is that an overwhelming majority of Black women and women of color get typed as eights or the challenger. Mm-hmm. It, and it plays into that cultural stereotype of that cultural trope of the angry Black woman. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. And for me, I'm, I'm sitting here like, they're not, they're not angry. They're just speaking their mind. <laughs> <laughs> which leads me to so i i am a book skimmer and but and i'm in the process of like reading your book cover to cover but i like skimmed this and i've read the 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 chapter that caught my eye in i bring the voices of my people Mm -hmm. was the unbearable whiteness of me And when we talk about shame and we talk about vulnerability and thinking about how uh, I think maybe a majority of the uh, permission to be audience it is identify uh, it, mm-hmm. it, how would it identifies as white or are white people um, or deemed white, white. presenting yeah um, yeah that you know Brene Brown is really doing some amazing work in this regard about vulnerability about um shame and when i read that it just struck me as and and thinking about the name of our podcast permission to be the question popped up into my mind of is being Mm -hmm. a privilege (laughs) Mm -hmm. i love your thoughts on that Mm. yeah you know i think perhaps Although I think in the argument I'm making in that chapter is it is not just black people whose personalities have been constrained and whose culture have been constrained by white supremacy. White people have been every bit as much constrained. Um, A lot of what goes on as permission to be mm-hmm. or authenticity in whiteness is actually just another manifestation of white culture, right? I think the vast majority of white people have no clue who they are. Um, they are ascribing to a cultural mandate that they can't see. Yes. Um, the biggest hallmark of which is conformity. So be like everybody else, even like white people who try to be individualistic, like they're being individualistic, like in the same way everybody else is. Right. So you get these trends, like when you got the lumberjack trend, like all the white men were like a nonconformist in exactly the same way. 
like you know same shirt same hair same beard same jeans but we're fighting the system and so that 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 idea of fitting in Right, and it, this is what makes it so hard for Black women to show up in these spaces. See, the reason one a lot of the times we can be angry is because we have nothing to lose. Right, the system ain't gonna give us nothing. Right, like it really isn't. So we don't need to conform as much to a model because we don't gain anything from that. Right, the more you have to lose by being um, deviant <laughs> from the cultural norm. Um, the more you are going to conform to it. And so white men and white women um, have to conform to this cultural norm, right? Which says you you don't want to stand out. Um, you got to be nice, right? Part of that is be nice above everything else. Just be nice um, because you don't want to stand out in any way. Um, you, you don't want to be shamed. You don't want to be shunned again. And I think that's why Brene Brown's work is so powerful. This idea of shame. Um, all this time, we've been thinking white culture was a culture based on individualism, right? And that guilt mm -hmm. was the issue white people had. And she comes along and says, no, actually, it's a shame-based culture. Mm -hmm. right? It's a shame-based culture pretending to be a guilt-based culture, right? And people are dealing with this deep shame. Um, and so part of what happens is Black women have a hard time showing up and being who we are because white women can't show up and be who they are. Right? And so we are constantly being measured against this um, norm yeah. of white womanness, um, especially in the Christian tradition that says, be a good girl, be faithful, be nice, don't make waves, right? Like all of these things, this whole, this baggage. And so um, I think white people absolutely need to free themselves. And so I don't think it's so much as a, a privilege um, as in, it is something we need for white people to do because we can't get free until white people get free. Right, as long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound, they're gonna keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to, right? And so we need them to begin to work to make waves, right? Say the opinion that's unpopular in the meeting and deal with that, right? Be the voice that speaks up instead of relying yeah, yeah. on the black woman to be the one in the room that says, well, let me say the thing that nobody else is gonna say, right? Mm -hmm. um, instead of coming to us after the meeting and saying, I'm so glad you said that. Like, no, say it mm -hmm. in the meeting. Like, stop waiting for us to be your voice, right? Find your voice and start speaking that voice mm -hmm. and deal with the discomfort of that. Um, that's the work we need. We need white people to do. I think more than anything. Yes. Um, I think the souls of white people, quite frankly, are very sick. There is a very sick culture mm -hmm. that has mm -hmm. been formed by participation in slavery. You can't do that and not be tainted by it. You just absolutely can't. And so I think we are at a point where white Christians, we don't even need everybody. We just need mm -hmm. enough, right? Are willing to really say, we need to look at this culture that has, shaped, that has shaped us and that slavery shaped. And we need to figure out what we're going to do to undo this culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And stop reading the Bible like it was meant for a white Jesus. Goodness, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. All of that.
as you were talking, one thing I was thinking about is like, well, you know, white women, it's the helpmates, you know, you're made to be a helpmate and all of these things. But I think there's such a lens of meekness when we read those words and those translations and how we interpret that, that we don't get it. Yeah. And it just plays further into white supremacy. It plays further in, it just furthers along that culture. Yeah. And we have to be, the, like you said, we have to be the ones who stand up and hear our voice and not be afraid that it's not fair when we get a response that is not, that might hurt our feelings. <laughs> and, and, and also like as a white woman, I, I just kind of want to speak to the other white women and say, it's black women. It's not that they don't have feelings. It's that we're afraid of our feelings. And I think, and I'm not trying to say everybody and every culture has it all together, but that fear, there's so much fear and, and we have to, being brave is not the absence of fear. Being brave is walking forward in spite of the fear. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's that. And it's knowing, so part of white femininity and how it was shaped by slavery in the context of patriarchy, right? So you have to mm-hmm. hold those things together is what white women learned to do under that system of white supremacist patriarchy was to use their fear to manipulate the system, right? Mm-hmm. To use their emotions and vulnerability because you can't come straight out, right? That system said to women, yeah. no, you can't come straight out and say what you want. You have to play this demure role. You have to be this, you know, the, mm-hmm. the cult of true woman. You have to be pious. You have to be submissive, um, all about the home. So the way that white women learned to exert influence on white men was through um, exploiting their vulnerability. It was through their mm-hmm. tears, right? Mm-hmm. You want somebody to do something, what are you going to do? You're going to cry. Right. And then you're going to get him. You're going to trigger all his feelings of protectiveness. And um, and and the white man sees the white woman is vulnerable and says, oh, no, now I've got to change this. I've got to do what she wants me to do. Mm-hmm. The problem is white women then turn those fears, um, those same tears and use them against weapons as uh, weapons against the oppressed. Yes. Right. And so they use them in interactions with black women in interactions with black men. Right. When we start talking about racism, white people start crying. Mm-hmm. Right. Like white women especially start crying. Right. Because that's how white women have been trained mm-hmm. to get things to bend to their will. Right. Right. Um, except now you're using it against the people that you already have power over. Right. You already have power. And so now you're taking emotional power, too. You're taking everything. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a learning, um, learning how even that has been cultivated. Right. So that. It's a matter of not repressing your tears, but making sure that they're not being used as weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's making sure that they're not a passive aggressive strategy, right? That they are like learning how to let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? Like when you say something is wrong, just say it's wrong. Mm-hmm. When you don't like it, say you don't like it. You ain't gonna mm-hmm. cry about it all the time, right? <laughs> like, like, or you can cry about it and still say, right? <laughs> learning yes. how to do both of those things, right? Yes. And I think. That's, that's part of it. It is just the way those tears and that fragility gets weaponized uh, against, um, against black women. Because what it does is it robs us of our ability to cry. Because mm. now mm. we got to take care of you, right? <laughs> because this is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to take care of you the moment you start that crying. 
not necessarily because we're all that compassionate and we love you that much, but because making white people comfortable is how we don't get hurt. See, because if you start crying, I lose my job. Yeah. Yeah, Making white people comfortable is how we don't get hurt. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Because if white women start crying, bad things happen. Right. Mm -hmm. We have whole black communities that have been raised to Mm -hmm. the ground by white mobs because a white woman cried and said a black man did something to her. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, We had whole families killed, lynched because a white woman cried, right? Mm. Emmett Till, a white woman cried, right? And so white women's tears, yeah, we're going to take care of those things because we know what happens when white women cry. Mm. We know who's at risk when white women cry. And so a lot of times our caregiving, it's not about that white woman. It's about protecting ourselves Mm -hmm. from the backlash that comes after white women's tears. Um, And so so it's important for white women to recognize that and to not use their tears in a way that triggers that in us um, and that and not use their tears in a way that. basically brings power over to their Mm -hmm. side yeah Mm. and that goes and i'm no doubt you know this um but for those who are listening you know that goes back all the way to the beginning founding of this country white women and i may be misquoting this statistic and i was trying to look up the author of this book and i can't remember but and her name is stephanie oh i'm sorry stephanie 40 percent of white women were the slaveholders and white women were some of the most brutal slave homer holders and so what we're we're just carrying that trauma we're carrying that trauma and we're over and over and over and over again um as andre henry says just enforcing that trauma bond. Yeah. I yeah. Th- I think that's interesting because as I was reading your book, you made a distinction. I think it, I what I received it as you making a distinction between between generational trauma or PTSD mm-hmm. as it relates to the oppressed and then moral injury. Yeah. As it relates to the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I I want to push back and, and part of this is um me being a clinical psychologist. I want to in some ways um protect the term trauma. Um especially PTSD. Um as um because when we when we've thought about it in psychology, we have typically thought of trauma as involving some event in which either your life or well-being was at stake or or the life of well-being you saw somebody else's at stake or that of somebody you cared for right and and, and it kind of hinged on that and what is interesting is when we talk about trauma at the individual level we don't talk about the rape survivor and the rapist as both traumatized right like we would never ever do that we would never say a rapist got traumatized through yeah. through sexually assaulting someone. We would never say that, right? Um, no. We would never try to make those equivalents. And so um, I think there has been a move, rightly so, to say, well, we need to talk about the, the damage that was done to the white psyche from participating in racism, just like we can talk about the damage done to the when you engaged in a crime against another human being. 
um, yes, that does damage to your psyche. I think it's two different types of damage, right? And so um, using the language um, from war of soldiers, um, I use the term moral injury to refer to what happens to what did happen um, to white slaveholders and what has been passed down um, through generations of white people who essentially um, engaged in a system that they, they, they knew to be evil. Right, um, and and we, we yeah. try to romanticize that slavery was brutal. Um, I, I, I sometimes mm. take my students through. I'm like, think about what it took to keep the system of slavery in place for one day in one city. Like, if you think about that, all the acts because people didn't want to be enslaved, right? Like that's why they were running away all the time, trying to run away, right? Because they didn't want to be enslaved. So to keep that system in place, you had to have brutality happening on a minute by minute basis, either brutality or the threat of it, right? And so it was absolutely brutal. They knew it was brutal. They knew it was evil and they did it anyway, right? And so then the question that becomes, what happens to the psyche, what happens to the souls, what happens to the entire culture of a people who engage in a system like that, even as their religious values tell them it's wrong. Right, and so that that moral injury gives us a different way to think about that. Right, it's oh, so then we say, yeah. okay, it's there are injuries on there are injuries on both sides, right? Um, there are injuries on both sides, but it looks different, and the work looks different, and how you heal from that needs to look different, right? And so I do push back against using the language of trauma for what has happened to white people because I'm like, yeah, that ain't the same. Makes that sense. ain't the same, right? But yeah, something happened. Yeah. We need to name that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, part one. Look forward to bringing you part two. But in the meantime, if you have any questions or simply want to continue the conversation, head on over to social media, Facebook or Instagram, the Permission to Be page. Leave us a comment and let's engage in some dialogue. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with part two.